This is an ABC podcast. Today's story is a mystery, a mystery that took decades to unravel. And it starts in November 1941. Now, this was a month before the attack on Pearl Harbour, and so Japan had not yet entered the war. But Australia was at war with Nazi Germany. And that month, an Australian warship, HMAS Sydney, was cruising down the coast of WA on its way to Fremantle. And somewhere off the coast of Carnarvon, they got a distress signal from a Dutch merchant ship. But as they got closer, the ship opened fire on them because it was only pretending to be a Dutch merchant vessel. In reality, it was a German warship, Cormoran, in disguise. Now, it's difficult to know exactly what happened, but the battle between the two ships was extraordinarily fierce, and both of them were sunk to the bottom of the Indian Ocean. Every single one of the 645 Australians on board died that day, but 200 of the German sailors were later rescued. The only Australian body that was ever recovered was found dead in a little life raft was drifting past Christmas Island a year later. The dead sailor had no ID, and so he was buried on the island, and the location of his grave was lost over time. No one knew how this man had ended up in a lifeboat. No one really knew how he died. No one knew who he was. And so the Royal Australian Navy launched an investigation, and they enlisted the help of Dr Jeremy Austin, a DNA scientist based at the University of Adelaide. Hello, Jeremy. Hello, Richard. This is an epic story. How long did you reckon this mystery would take to solve when you first signed up for it, Jeremy? Well, to be honest, I think we thought we were going to solve the mystery in a a couple of months. You know, we we had the technology to get DNA from um, degraded human remains, and the Navy already had three shortlisted sailors who they they thought were this man. So, yeah, we really thought we were going to solve it very quickly. And how long did it actually take in the end? From start to finish, we got the remains in 2007 and the decision on the identification of the sailor didn't happen until uh, middle of last year, so 2021. So it was a 14-year journey from start to finish. When I looked into the background of that naval battle between Sydney and Cormoran in the Indian Ocean, the first thing I thought, I have to say, was what on earth is a German battleship doing in that part of the world in 1941. Do we have any idea of what it was doing there, Jeremy? Yeah, my understanding was that the Sydney was escorting uh, merchant ships between Australia and the Middle East, uh, trying to protect them from German warships that were in the area. So we think the Cormoran was patrolling, looking for either merchant ships to sink or, as you know, Australian naval ships to sink as well. So that was, I suppose, tied to the North African campaign or Australian supply of foodstuffs to the British or arms supplies going backwards and forwards. This is all entangled then in this area. Yeah, and I think it was um, yeah, definitely movement of uh, food and equipment and people from Australia into both the Middle East and probably ultimately into um, Europe as well. Given that there were no Australian survivors, only German survivors, what do we know about the fierceness of the battle that took place? Yeah, there was a, uh, a Royal Commission on, into the sinking of the ship about 10 years ago. And certainly the written description from the German survivors say that the Sydney was incapacitated very quickly. The bridge was knocked out with one of the very first strikes from the Cormoran. And I think the lasting impression I have is the Germans talking about the Sydney 
heading away as the sun was setting, completely aflame, um, you know, never to be seen again. So the, the ship really was totally destroyed uh, and it was heavily on fire when it was last seen at sea. Do we know anything about why the, the officers on board or the, command, the, the commanding officers on board were so easily gulled by the Germans pretending to be Dutch merchant ships and the reason why they came so close? No, and that's one of the really big mysteries is is why the Australian uh, ship Sydney was was that close and, and in a situation where it was very vulnerable to um, attack from the cormorant. And, of course, we'll never know the answer to that because uh, no-one survived. Uh, and it, it actually took several days before the Australians even realised that Sydney had been sunk. And I wonder how that was reported at the time. Did they try and put a lid on it and not make much of it, or was it seen as a kind of a national disaster? Yeah, again, my limited reading on it suggests that it, it was reported, but not, not reported in a, in a particularly you know, melodramatic kind of way. So again, you know, in the war, I guess people were trying to maintain spirits and maintain morale, and so it was reported but not just as a, as a huge, big naval disaster. I think, um, you know, there was still quite a lot of confusion about exactly what had happened. All those dead men who died on the deck or in the water. It was a, mm-hmm. a terrible thing. What about the German survivors, the 200 German survivors? who? What happened to them? How were they picked up? Yeah, I know very little about that one. I think, you know, they were probably collected by um, fishing boats coming out of Carnarvon and, and other towns nearby. Initially, there was some suspicion about what had actually happened in terms of why there were so many German survivors, despite the fact that Cormoran sunk as well, uh, versus there being no um, Australian survivors. So, you know, there's a long history of questions about the behaviour of the uh, German sailors during the attack and subsequently when there may or may not have been, you know, living Australians um, in the water or in lifeboats uh, as the Sydney sunk. Given that they were the enemy at that point and we were at war with them, how reliable were their accounts of what happened once they were picked up and and, and taken to the mainland? I think initially there was uh, some suspicion that some of the accounts given by the the German sailors uh, varied and weren't consistent and I think that led to decades of suspicion about how and why the Sydney was attacked in the first place and why there were so... or why all of the Australian uh, sailors on board were killed. And I think that's what led to the Royal Commission, say, 10 or 15 years ago, was trying to bring together all of the information that had ever been collected on the accounts from the Germans, uh, whatever records had survived, the known position of of the Sydney and anything else that had been managed to be collected in the intervening sort of 50 or 60 years. So there was a lot of information brought together uh, about the cause of the sinking, what happened to the Australian sailors, uh, and ultimately, um, you know, why the, the boat was sunk in the first place. And that brings us to the one crew member who didn't go down with the ship, the man who was found on a raft. What do you know about the circumstances in which this unknown crewman was found? His body was um, uh, mostly decomposed, so he'd been floating in this life raft for at least three months. Obviously, in tropical conditions out at sea, there's not going to be a huge amount of preservation, so his body was mostly decomposed, so mostly just a skeleton. There was He was still wearing clothing, uh, I understand, but he didn't have any identification on him or nor any, any identifying sort of features. So... When he was, his body was recovered, relatively quickly, his body was buried in, a, in the cemetery on uh, Christmas Island. But for reasons unknown, the gravesite wasn't kept marked uh, subsequently. It might be that the Christmas Island was taken over by uh, the Japanese at some point in the Second World War, 
and they may well have um, either removed some headstones or removed some, some crosses on some of the graves and that made the location of uh, the burial much more difficult. But the, yeah, the guy was found more or less a skeleton, a shrapnel wound to his head and uh, some clothing that he was wearing and that's what he was buried in. A shrapnel wound to his head and the clothing he was buried in. So we fast forward then to 2006. It seems like the Navy never forgot him, Jeremy, never forgot him. How did they then go about trying to locate his remains on Christmas Island? Well, because the gravesite had been lost, they had to rely on a couple of eyewitness accounts. So there were still a few people alive who remembered Christmas Island back in the 1940s. And there were some photographs of the cemetery. And so they helped the Navy uh, try and locate where they thought the, the gravesite was. And the, the Navy dug a couple of test pits, so you need to um, dig small holes down into the ground until they located the remains. And then, obviously, they carefully excavated those remains and the remains were brought back to the Australian mainland and then went through a very thorough um, examination from an anthropologist. So anthropologists look at bones and, and features of the skeleton to try and say something about the uh, biological sex, you know, the age, the height of the person, any um, broken bones they may have had, any other sort of pathological uh, diseases they might have had. Jeremy, you say he had a shrapnel hole in his head, but he was in a life raft. What can we assume about the chain of events then, if he's, if he's got a shrapnel? I mean, assuming that that's from, a, a, what, a gun or from an exploding bit of the hull of the ship? Or what do we think about that? Yeah, there was some really um, clever sort of forensic investigation done on the on the shrapnel itself. So some metallurgists tested the metal of the shrapnel because the, the shrapnel was still inside his skull when they really? recovered the skull. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And so it was determined that the the metal, or the characteristics of the metal in the shrapnel were very likely to be German munitions and not part of the the Sydney and not part of um, an Australian uh, shells or or ammunition. So. It, it would appear, based on that, that the man was either in the life raft and then subsequently got hit in the head with a piece of flying shrapnel. So maybe he was in the life raft quite close to the Sydney when a, a shell came and hit the Sydney, it exploded and, and hit him in the head. And the images, the drawings of the, of the size of the hole in his head and the piece of shrapnel, uh, you know, I'm no doctor, but it would suggest to me that that, that uh, shrapnel probably killed him very, very quickly. Alternatively, he was either on the ship or in the water and got hit in the head with a shrapnel and somehow managed to crawl into the life raft before, before he died. Could he have been shot while in the life raft? Could that shrapnel actually be part of... Is it possible that some evil bastard just shot him while he was actually in the life raft? Yeah, I think that one was pretty much uh, dispensed pretty, uh, pretty uh, quickly. As it, it, the, the metal wasn't from a bullet, so it was more likely to have come right. from a larger shell that, um, that actually was used to, to fire at the ship as opposed to people firing um, yeah, bullets out of guns. So the Navy came to you. When the Navy came to you, what did they ask you to do, Jeremy? They had heard about our ancient DNA centre and you know, effectively what we do is we extract DNA from highly degraded animal remains, human remains, bits of plants, soil, you know, all sorts of weird and wonderful um, biological material that has been sitting around for thousands or tens of thousands of years. So they came to us and said, look, we've got the remains of this uh, sailor. Uh, can you help us get a DNA profile from his remains and then compare that DNA profile to uh, living family members of some of the um, HMA Sydney crew? 
What brought you into this line of science, Jeremy, working on reassembling ancient bits of DNA? Yeah, my career's been more or less accidental. I, I started out uh, doing sort of genetics, so um, DNA on living birds back, back in the 90s for my PhD when I was at the University of Tasmania. And that was just about the time that science, various scientists around the world were trying to and then showing that they could get DNA from extinct animals. Uh, the very first one was the quagga, which is an extinct relative of the zebra. And that opened up this field called ancient DNA where people could go to museums and take a little bit of tissue or a bit of bone off a museum specimen or they could go to a cave and find the bone of a, you know, an, uh, a human or an extinct Neanderthal or a mammoth and get DNA from those bits of dried um, flesh or skin or bone. And so I got into this ancient DNA field way back in the 90s, just as it was beginning, completely by accident, um, and have more or less been, you know, working in that area ever since. Why do you do this? What can harvesting this DNA tell you? Can it tell you something about what the animal looked like, what it ate, how it moved about? Yeah, most of the questions, uh, at least originally, were what is the extinct animal or plant related to? What's its nearest living relative? So, you know, people initially looked at DNA from things like the quagga. So was, what was the quagga most closely related to? They got DNA from mammoths and said, OK... Uh, a mammoth more closely related to Asian a elephants or African elephants. Uh, we've done work on, you know, the dodo, the ex this extinct bird from um, Mauritius. Turns out the dodo was a giant flightless pigeon that was related to <laughs> pigeons from um, Southeast Asia. So most of those original questions were around what is the, the extinct thing you're looking at uh, most closely related to? And as technology changed and developed and improved, people have now asked even more complicated questions about how did the population size of animals and humans and plants change over tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years? What caused extinctions? So yeah, this isn't you know, genetic work for its own sake. This is actually just... This is a branch of evolutionary biology, then. You're trying to fill in the great big tree of... Well, if that's the word for it, or the, the, uh, the great big jigsaw puzzle of what animal is related to which animal, where they come from, who's who in the, in, in the zoo, so to speak. Yeah, effectively we are. We are building this evolutionary tree of life, but we're, at, we're now able to add in extinct animals and plants and, and populations. Have you since ventured into the world of humans? Yeah, so in the, I guess, the mid-2000s, we uh, had a big project looking at human genetic diversity around the world. Uh, and as part of that, we were including both living humans and also uh, samples of humans from thousands or tens of thousands of years ago. Because you can, by travelling back through time and taking time slices with that DNA, you can see how populations of humans have changed or moved, getting involved in the human, uh, ancient human genetic research. And that's what led us to, to being asked by the Navy to, um, to help with this sailor identification. So, Jeremy, if I were to tell you that I have Viking ancestry, how massively impressed would you be by that statement? <laughs> I guess one of the, one of the problems is uh, most people with European ancestry in Australia have probably some snippet of Viking ancestry. Oh, stop, stop it! 
<laughs> I'm standing and, uh, here with a double-headed axe slung over my shoulder. <laughs> I'm wearing a bearskin. Don't don't kill my little fantasy here, please. <laughs> it's pretty common then, is it? Uh, yes, uh, mostly because, uh, you know, pop human populations have been expanding for tens of thousands of years. So the further you go back in time, the more we all share more or less the same set of relatives. So you're Adelaide Uni's go-to guy for ancient DNA. Is ancient DNA what it sounds like? Old bits of DNA that you've got to sort of piece together, like torn bits of cloth? Yeah, um, the way I like to explain it is if you think about the DNA that's inside one human cell, it's all nice and neatly arranged into things called chromosomes, and those chromosomes contain enormous amounts of information. In fact, uh, one chromosome, the longest human chromosome, if you were to type out the DNA code in that chromosome in 12-point uh, font, so that's just, you know, normal kind of uh, font you'd find in a, in a book, in a single line it would reach from Adelaide to Ballarat going <laughs> along the uh, Dukes and Western Highway. So that's, that's just one of our 23 chromosomes. And what happens with ancient DNA is that big, long strands of DNA, the minute an animal or a human or a plant dies, the DNA starts getting chopped into smaller and smaller and smaller bits to the point where those uh, little bits of DNA that we go looking for are now maybe 30 or 40 letters long. So you've taken something that's stretched 600 kilometres long and you've chopped it into bits that are now probably uh, 10, 15 centimetres long. So it's like an enormous jigsaw puzzle, a mind-bogglingly huge jigsaw puzzle. Or a book the that's problem, been torn the, to pieces, you know, where yeah, the pages have been torn to pieces yeah. and, and you've got maybe about a third of the, third of the pieces or mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah, so it's, you know, for people that are familiar with encyclopedias, it's like taking an encyclopedia, tearing it into little bits and then burning sort of you know, half to three quarters of the pieces. So the bits you've got left with are only a tiny fraction of what was there originally. So this brings us to our lost sailor. How did you extract samples of his DNA? What did you have to work with, Jeremy? So the Navy came to us in 2007 and they had the man's lower jaw. Uh, teeth are particularly good places to find uh, DNA. Generally the um, hard enamel outer coating on the crown of the tooth helps protect DNA inside and then the root stuck inside the, the actual bone of the jaw so that also helps protect DNA. So they brought us the, the man's lower jaw and we pulled out uh, two teeth and then we just cut the root off the teeth. We can put the, t the actual rest of the tooth back in the jaw again. And then we effectively grind that little bit of tooth root up into powder, dissolve it, uh, and then that releases the DNA. And what we're left with is a little tiny tube with a drop of colourless liquid that contains these tiny fragments of the man's uh, DNA. What information are you actually extracting it? I mean, uh, my understanding is it's all made up of there's like sequences of four letters, isn't it? G A T C, mm -hmm. is C. that it? Yeah. Yep. So, so are, you've just got a string of G, G's and A's and T's and C's, then, have you? Yeah. And so, in humans, there's three types of DNA. So, there's nuclear DNA, which is in the nucleus. You inherit half of that from your mum and half of that from your dad. There's stuff called mitochondrial DNA, which are inside mitochondria, and mitochondria basically produce energy for cells, and you only inherit your mitochondrial DNA from your mum. And in uh, males, there's a thing called Y-chromosome DNA, and males only inherit their Y-chromosome from their fathers. So uh, traditionally, in f uh, forensic science and human identification, particularly when we're dealing with this degraded or ancient DNA, we target the mitochondrial DNA because there's lots more of it per cell. Um, mitochondria, you might have thousands of copies per cell. 
and because it's circular, it's relatively small and circular, it tends to survive a little bit better than the nuclear DNA. So we were initially chasing the mitochondrial DNA. There's other advantages of mitochondrial DNA. It's because you inherit it from your mum, you share your mitochondrial DNA with your brothers and sisters and your mother and any maternal uh, aunties and uncles, so any of your mum's brothers or sisters, and similarly with your um, maternal grandmother and any brothers and sisters. And that allows comparison between a deceased person and someone who is relatively distantly related. You know, some of the classic exa examples of that were the identification of Richard III, the, the king in England whose body was found in a car park in yeah. Leicester, I think. They extracted mitochondrial DNA from him. Uh, he died 600 years ago. Uh, and so they found two living people who had an unbroken chain of females mum, grandma, great-grandma, etc., going all the way back to Richard III's mother. And they could compare the mitochondrial DNA from those people alive today to these remains that were 600 years old and get a match. And that helped them, as part of the whole identification process, identify those bones. So that's the other advantage of, of using mitochondrial DNA. You don't have to have a brother or sister or a mum or a dad in order to make those identifications. It's thereby identifying the rightful king and queen of England. These things can be quite politically and emotionally charged, can't they? So when, so, <laughs> so when, you, when you extracted that DNA info from yep. the lost sailor's uh, jawbone and tooth, as you mm -hmm. say, how damaged was it? What did you have to work with? Yeah, so back then we were, we were looking for or we were able to get DNA sequences for pieces of DNA that are about 150 letters long, so, you know, this string of ACGs and Ts, and we would effectively copy those bits, uh, sequence them, and then put uh, overlapping pieces together until we had about 500 letters or 500 base pairs of sequence. And uh, again, back in the late uh, 2000s, that was about as good as we could get in terms of the mitochondrial sequence. So we had, you know, 500 bases of DNA sequence um, that we got originally, uh, and that was enough to then start making comparisons to maternal relatives of sailors that the, the Navy thought that this, this man might be. I hear stories of this kind of work which is so delicate and the samples have to remain so pristine. How much mm -hmm. of a risk is DNA contamination in the lab and what can you do to prevent that, Jeremy? Yeah, so that's one of the really big uh, critical problems with ancient DNA work is that because... We're, we're chasing these tiny skerricks of highly degraded um, DNA. Any other DNA that gets onto the sample or into the sample is a problem. And when you're working with humans, it's even more of a problem because you have humans. So there's me, you know, uh, extracting DNA from the tooth of the sailor. I have DNA. My DNA is in pristine condition. So, so like dandruff could float down onto a slide. Seriously, is yep, it like that? Yep. That's it, is it? No, yeah, or even just breath, to be honest. Oh. Uh, we now know that as you breathe in and out, you're breathing DNA into the environment. Um, you know, I'm sitting here in Adelaide. There's now a pool of my DNA <laughs> on, 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 every, on everything I've touched, everything I've breathed on. Um, and so I'm going to have a shower work. after this. So <laughs> <laughs> Trust me, you can't. You just cannot get rid of it. Uh, so... What we do is we do this work in what's called an ancient DNA laboratory, and all that really is is a clean room, a super, super clean room with HEPA-filtered air, and we use UV lights because UV light will kill DNA, and we use tonnes of bleach because bleach destroys DNA, and the lab is under positive air pressure to keep dust and bugs and stuff out. And then we dress up 
uh, even more severely than um, you know people that take your COVID swab. So we have um, full-on body suits and we wear like three pairs of gloves and we have a face mask on and then we have a face shield over the top of that. And all of that is to stop our DNA getting out and contaminating the samples we work on. So once you had something of a picture of the lost sailor's DNA, where did you go from there? So that was when the Navy went and found maternal relatives. So that's someone who has an unbroken line of female ancestors back to uh, a shared female ancestor with the sailor. Usually that was with the sailor's um, mum. The Navy went and found three relatives of three sailors and they you just go to that, those people they find them they ask them you know you're a, you're an, a relative of one of the 645 sailors on the boat can we get a mouth swab so they just do a little uh, swab inside the mouth and they send that to us and we go through the same process but this time it's you know nice high quality clean dna so we extract dna we sequence the same bits of mitochondrial dna and then we just compare the dna sequence from the family member to the DNA sequence that we have from the sailor. And how did you and go well, with those three, three, uh, three candidate families there? Uh, so the first three didn't match. And the good thing with mitochondrial DNA is you don't get a match, you know that that sailor whose maternal relative you've sampled cannot be the, the person whose remains were found uh, on Christmas Island. So the first three sailors were then crossed off the list. Podcast. Broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So, Jeremy, you said the Navy had three candidates for you to work with, but then your data showed that all three of them had to be ruled out. What did you do then? Yeah, so the Navy uh, then said, OK, well, we've got another short list of 16 sailors, and they proceeded to go out, find uh, living relatives. And, you know, th that's not a, an easy process. You know, this man died in 1941 trying to uh, piece together family trees and then track down people alive today you know, door knocking them or writing to them and asking for a, a DNA sample it isn't a necessarily a quick and easy process. No, so, and a quite a sensitive one as well, I imagine. Yes. So the Navy then said, well, OK, we've got a short, another short list of 16. So they went and uh, got uh, DNA samples from those 16, sent them to us over a couple of years, uh, and we tested all, each one of those, and all of those also weren't a match either. So at that point, we'd now excluded 19 sailors, 19 out of 655. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, while the years are rolling on, was the science improving on what you can uh, interpret from the DNA sample you had? Yes. So uh, originally, we'd been focusing just on this mitochondrial DNA, but during the 2000s, forensic scientists and other geneticists around the world were realising that they could find out more about a, a person from their DNA other than just what sort of mitochondrial DNA they had or, you know, who was their biological father or whether how many brothers or sisters you had. And one of the really important ones was um, being able to predict or attempt to predict hair and eye colour using small DNA markers that are involved in hair and eye colour in humans. And so there was a group 
in the Netherlands who had developed a test to predict human hair and eye colour for forensic applications. And so in 2011, I jumped on a plane with a, a little tiny bit of DNA that we had left from the sailor and flew to the Netherlands with that DNA and we got the scientists there in the Netherlands to, to run a test to predict the, the sailor's hair and eye colour. And what did it say he would have looked like? Uh, well, we got, at the time, what I thought was the best possible result you could ever hope for, and that was the man was predicted to have red hair and blue eyes. And as I guess as most Australians know, red hair and blue eyes aren't particularly common. Celtic. And in a ship, yep. Uh, so that was the other thing, is, is someone with red hair and blue eyes is almost certainly of Celtic ancestry or had someone in their family of Celtic ancestry. And on a ship of 645, you know, most people, when they go to school, you know, how many kids do you know with blue eyes and flaming red hair? You know, there might be five or six kids in the whole school. So at least theoretically, that cut down the pool from 645 to maybe three or four people. So bingo. Is Scottish... that what you thought, bingo? Yeah, at the time, yes, that's exactly <laughs> what I thought. I was like, OK, this is now going to be really easy. But of course... When you go back to uh, enlistment records for Australians in either the First or Second World War, the recording of things like hair and eye colour weren't particularly uh, fantastic. Sometimes they were quite quite inaccurate. Uh, a lot of the records for many of the sailors were actually on the HMA Sydney when it was sunk, so a lot of those records were lost. So it didn't, at the time, it didn't directly help us find the four men on the ship who, who were identified as um, red hair and blue eyes. But it did give our contacts in the Navy a much better idea of who they should be looking for. So people with Scottish or Irish ancestry and where there was some indication from some either photographs or written records or enlistment records that the man had red hair and blue eyes. You're a scientist and you're not going to be into this, but as you're telling me this, I just kept this picture in my head of this of this dead man calling to be found. Uh, that's human imagination, I know. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm, there's nothing more to it than that. But do you, did you have a sense of that man wanting to be found? Over the years, I actually be began to thought that he didn't want to be found, that for whatever reason, oh. he wanted to stay a mystery because we kept testing family member after family member after family member over the years, and we still didn't get a match. We got close. So the Scottish-Irish ancestry thing helped because... The mitochondrial DNA type that, that this man had is quite common in Ireland, Scotland and also Scandinavia. And so because the Navy were now targeting people who were related to a Sydney sailor that had Scottish Irish ancestry, the mitochondrial DNA we were getting from those family members was getting close. It was in the right sort of ballpark area in terms of, of mitochondrial sequence. But it was never an exact match. But over the years, I, I honestly started to think we're just never going to identify this guy. For whatever reason, he just you know, didn't want to be found. So then in 2018, you decided to look outside the lab, look for other ways to, to find the lost sailor. Tell me where you went looking. Yeah, so in the last 10 years, genetic genealogy has really taken off. And what that means is that for a relatively small amount of money, you know, I've paid, I think, $100, you spit in a tube, you send your tube to, to America or to whichever company you want to send it to, and they sequence large numbers of 
DNA markers in your nuclear DNA, which tell you, you know, how much Viking ancestry you've got or French ancestry or, or, or Neanderthal ancestry. But you can also pay a little bit more and you get your mitochondrial DNA sequenced. And so a lot of people now have had their mitochondrial DNA sequenced. And it made me think that we could start searching databases, publicly available databases, private databases, to see if we could find anyone on the planet who had the same mitochondrial sequence as the sailor. Because up until that point, I'd searched every publicly available database, and we're talking, you know, tens of thousands of mitochondrial sequences, and not a single person that I could find had exactly the same sequence as a sailor. So I knew if we could find one person on the planet anywhere, then a genealogist might be able to then trace that person's family tree back two, three or six generations and then down other branches of the family tree to connect to the sailor. So what I did was start, I went out on Facebook, I went out on Twitter, I gave talks at uh, genealogy conferences, trying to connect with people who had their own DNA tested and knew enough about DNA technology that when I said, I'm looking for this particular mitochondrial DNA type, they could interrogate their own private databases and let me know whether they've found a match. So we're effectively now casting the net as wide as we possibly could. Jeremy, I have to say, this sounds like a hopeless task. It really does. It just sounds like looking for the needle in the haystack. It just seems so scattergun and something you'd be doing for the rest of your life. How did you finally make a breakthrough with this approach? Well, the casting the net widely approach eventually paid off in 2019 when, of all places, I gave a talk at the South Australian Genealogy Society. So they have a DNA specialist group, and I went along and gave a talk one night. So I'd been giving talks on using ancient DNA for human identification for years and years and years, and I always put the HMA Sydney story in because it's, it's an example of we knew so much about this guy, but we just can't find anyone alive who with the same mitochondrial DNA that will give us a link to someone on the boat. So I gave this talk, and at the end I said, here's the man's mitochondrial sequence. Uh, I know some people in the room uh, know about mitochondrial DNA. I know some of you are in groups with access to databases that I can't see. You know, if you've got time, go home and just check and see if you can find uh, this mitochondrial sequence anywhere in any records that you have. And the very next morning, to my incredible shock, I got an email from a lady who'd been in the audience who said... Uh, there's someone in my, I think it was a Facebook group, you know, it was like uh, Scottish and Irish descendants in Australia Facebook group. There's a, there's a person here who manages a, an account with the mitochondrial sequence you're looking for, the exact mitochondrial sequence. It wasn't a close, it was an exact uh, match. There's one particular DNA base that we were really looking for and it had that one. And I almost had a heart attack because, you know, for 13 years... I'd been sequencing and sequencing and sequencing family relatives. I think we got to 200 family relatives in the end, uh, thinking I was going to be doing this now for the rest of my life until we ticked off all 645 uh, sailors. So my reaction to that was, okay, I need to get in, get in contact with this person and just make sure that their mitochondrial sequence that they've reported in this Facebook group is actually true. So I contacted them, the owner or the manager of the group they gave my email address to the guy. Turns out he was the son of the man who'd had his mitochondrial sequence. And this, this man was incredibly helpful. I think his father had, had since died, so he was just managing his, his father's you know, DNA account. Uh, 
he sent me the results. I confirmed that it was what I thought it was. And then I immediately contacted the Navy and said, look, I think we found a DNA match between the sailor and someone who was actually living in Australia. So to find that connection, you had it sounds like you had to sort of go up the family tree and back down again. Is that right? Yeah. Greg Swindon, who's the, who's the Navy contact, who's been arranging all the DNA sampling, he uh, immediately and furiously spent the weekend tracking the person whose DNA result we had, his family tree, back and back and back and back and back, and then down every possible branch he could find. And you can imagine, you know, there's tens if not hundreds of branches to come back down towards the future again until he found a link between the man whose mitochondrial DNA sequence we'd been given and a man on the boat. So who was the mystery lost sailor of HMAS Sydney? That man was uh, a guy called Thomas Wellsby Clark. Um, he was 21 years old. He'd, he'd grown up in Brisbane. And once we had that link to Thomas Clark, the Navy could then go out and, and get additional family samples from other parts of the, of the tree of uh, female relatives. But they've had to go back to the early 1800s to a lady who was living in Scotland who emigrated to Australia in the, in the early 1800s and then, you know, had a daughter who had a daughter who had a daughter who had a son, Thomas Willsby Clark. That in itself was, you know, a really amazing bit of just, you know, family tree research. So once, they, once we had that name, uh, just to be 100% sure that we really did have a match, the Navy then went and collected some um, samples from other people who were relatives of uh, Thomas Clark and we sequenced those, and they all matched as well. So at least from the mitochondrial DNA side of things, as far as we were concerned, we'd found a match which supported the identification of, of Thomas Clark. Poor Thomas Clark, who died at sea in an inferno of, of gunfire and death and blood and misery. That poor man. Were his family then contacted? And, and if, if so, how did they feel about having him identified as the lost sailor of HMAS Sydney? There's only, as far as I know, there's only one person alive today who, who ever saw Thomas Clark alive. Uh, and that was a cousin of his who was a, apparently, she was about a month old just before um, he set out on the Sydney. And her family or her family record tells her that, you know, she saw him or he held her when, just before he went away on the ship. So there's a first cousin and then there's obviously more distant relatives and some of those distant relatives may or may not have been aware of his existence you know there's probably most Australians or many not most I should say many Australians have uh, relatives who died in the first and second second world war that you are probably unaware of until you start doing you know family tree research certainly the news reports I saw from uh, Thomas's cousin were that she felt very grateful to the enormous efforts that that you know, hundreds of people had put in to identifying Thomas, because you know he represents the only person who's ever been found and identified from those 645 sailors who died on the boat that day. Do you know where he's buried now? He was buried in 2008 in the Commonwealth War Grave in Geraldton in Western Australia. In 2008, both the Sydney and the Cormorand uh, wrecks were found in two and a half thousand metres of water in the Indian Ocean. And so the Navy held a commemorative ceremony then at the same time as the burial of the remains, at that point unidentified remains, in the war grave. 
in Geraldton. So it seems there's all sorts of interesting lessons to be drawn from this. One is that you absolutely needed the kind of extraordinary state-of-the-art science to begin the process. But in the end, Mm -hmm. the thing that got the result wasn't that particularly high-tech. You've got, like, the cheap cost of genealogy testing. You've got genealogy enthusiasts who are having meetings and want to invite people like you to speak to them. And the existence of social media as a means by which people can talk to one another and actually communicate and share Mm -hmm. these results. What do you Mm -hmm. think about all that? Yeah, but I think ultimately it came down to luck. You you think about all the things that had to happen for, for us to get this identification first... Thomas Clark had to end up in a life raft and float around the Indian Ocean for three months and and drift past Christmas Island and get found. You know, that in itself is a miracle. Second, the Navy had to find his his grave on Christmas Island. You know, that's not a miracle, but it was certainly a huge amount of work. And then I think, third, I had to give a talk to the right group of people on the right day and the right person happened to be sitting in the audience who then diligently went home and checked their databases. And if none of those things had happened, Thomas Clark would, would, would be probably on the bottom of the Indian Ocean along with all of his, um, his fellow sailors. Or he would still remain unidentified and we'd still be testing you know, family members diligently until we tested every single family member of every sailor on the ship. And that might have taken us you know, decades. Something very satisfying about all this, but by and large, though, I think this is really a story of perseverance. Uh, I think it says something really impressive about the the Navy and you, that you persevered so long, that people cared so much for so long about this. Was it just a matter of, I don't know, filling in the Sudoku puzzle of the gene sequence for you, or was it more than that for you? I get really enormous satisfaction about from applying these, you know, sometimes esoteric techniques, you know, uh, understanding whether a dodo, where a dodo came from, you know, what is a Tasmanian a tiger related, most closely related to, those are interesting scientific questions. But I think using the exact same techniques to say I've identified or helped identify the remains of a human being who, uh, in this case, you know, died a, a fairly horrible death, serving his country at a very early, a young age. He was only 21 when he died. And connecting that person back with uh, family members and allowing, in this case, a name to be put on his gravestone in Geraldton, you know, I think that's an amazing application of uh, some incredible new technology. How about your own family history? Are there any missing servicemen in your family? Yeah, so as a consequence of searching for the sailor, uh, I started poking around in my own family tree it gets easier these days because you don't necessarily have to uh, dig around in birth, deaths and marriages offices all the time. And I discovered that I had, a, uh, I think, a great-granduncle, so my, one of my grandfather's um, father's brothers, I think, who died in the First World War at the Battle of Messines, which is a, you know, quite a famous battle involving Australia. It was uh, um, made famous by the movie in the book Under Hill 60. Oh, yeah, right. The, the giant explosives that were put yeah. in the mine underneath the, uh, the German army. The German lines, yeah. So my relative was killed in that battle, quite early on in that battle, and his body's never been recovered. Uh, and he was quite young. You know, he was only in his 20s. And I didn't know of his existence until a couple of years ago. And I find that quite poignant thinking about a man who 
you know, I'm not that closely related to, but whose body is somewhere in a field in Belgium, probably, you know, in multiple bits, uh, who may never be recovered, but who I have the technology, or me and other scientists have the technology, to identify him if and when parts of his body are ever recovered. And I think that really brings home the importance of kind of uh, identifying both war dead and murder victims and missing persons is every single living person was connected to someone else at the time and they're connected to descendants who are alive today. And for many people, not necessarily everyone, but for many people, you know, that it's a, it's a piece of your family history that if it can get solved, yeah, it just brings uh, wonderful closure, I think, to some people. In 2018, I was in Passchendaele in Belgium mm -hmm. making a series about the centenary of Armistice Day and I was sitting at, in this cafe with my producers who were both vegans at the time, <laughs> Jeremy, and, you know, it's not easy being a vegan in a Belgian cafe, I've got to tell you. They, 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 they really do look at you like you're mad and I was trying to explain this to the waitress and there was a farmer at the next table, a farmer, and he heard us and our Australian accents mm -hmm. and he came over and slapped down a bunch of empty shells on the table, right in front of us. These were rounds, you know, empty shells from rounds that had mm -hmm. been fired mm -hmm. more than 100 years ago. Nothing's mm -hmm. ever quite put to rest until you find out who is there. There's nothing, there's nothing ever final about those things. This was still very real in Passchendaele yep. more than 100 years after that slaughterhouse of, uh, of mm -hmm. the battle that was mm -hmm. fought there. I've, you know, I've, vis I've only visited one Commonwealth war grave, and that was in England. And I discovered it by accident. I can't even tell you where it was in England now, but I was, you know, living in England in the late 90s. And I walked into that Commonwealth War Grave one, early one morning. And there was, I was the only person there, and it was one of the most moving experiences I've ever had in my life. I had no connection to any of these Australians who were buried in this, in this um, cemetery. But it really was quite a, a moving experience, and I still remember it to this day. Like I say, I have no idea where it was in England because I don't remember that part, but I remember standing there with the sun shining on this hillside and just looking at names of Australians and, you know, they're all in their late teens, early 20s and thinking about the, the things they went through, one, to get to Europe in the first place uh, and then what happened to them subsequently. And, it, yeah, it is. It's, I think to many people in Europe it still is, despite, you know, 100 years since the First World War, it's still quite a raw sort of uh, a thing. Jeremy, it's been amazing hearing this story. It's an extraordinary tale, and I've been so uh, impressed by this incredible tale of, of perseverance and the memory of, a, of one man who died all those years ago. It's been great to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Dr Jeremy Austin is a DNA scientist based at the University of Adelaide. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.